0: Amir Khusro, an ancient poet and a very famous one, writes about Kashmir in Farsi. Agar fir to to This translates to, "If there is a paradise on earth, it is this, it is this, it is this." When you parallel the couplet against the fact that Kashmir is one of the most militarized regions of the world, engaged in a three-decade-long conflict, that says something about the effect of politics on our lives. Jammu and Kashmir is a region in the extreme north of India. It used to be one of the 29 Indian states with special status until 2019, after which its status was changed. Such series of events have intensified the Kashmiri conflict, once again making it crucial for us to understand why it all began. Presently, the governance in Kashmir is nothing less than dictatorial, and it only gets worse by the day. Kashmir has seen a lockdown and all communication blackouts since 2019. And this isn't a lockdown due to coronavirus like the rest of the world. This is a lockdown that the Indian state has imposed on the region to control the dissent. Which is interesting to note because democracy accommodates differences of opinions, one would think. So, what are the dissenters demanding? You see, Kashmir has been fighting what it calls the colonialism of India for three decades now. The rebels demand an independent Kashmir. Such a demand is viewed as disloyalty to India and the dissenters are viewed as anti-nationals. Journalists of any profile are not allowed into the state unless of course it is government-owned media. It is difficult to differentiate between rebels and civilians and so the civilians get killed all the time. Multiple narratives are born out of such killings. Groups of Kashmiris would refer to them as martyrs while the government would declare them terrorists. The torture and rape by the military presence in the region is documented to an extent. But again, how does one document in a region where all communication is banned? So you see, the grievances are many while the platforms to express those do not exist. What do you think the consequences of such a conflict is going to do to the secular identity of India? One of the first things textbooks will tell you about India is that it is one of the largest democracies of the world. But its democratic nature is debatable when you learn how it has treated Kashmir over the decades. With this returns the big question, where do the Muslims of India belong? Now this question, right, it has been India's sensitive nerve ever since they've won their freedom from the British. Mm, To start from the start, back when the Britishers were leaving India, British was partitioned into what is now India and Pakistan to sovereign nations. And both nations wanted the region of Jammu and Kashmir for their nation-building strategy. It was crucial for them. Pakistan believed that Jammu and Kashmir is a Muslim-majority region and should be a part of Pakistan for the religious compatibility, whereas India thought that Jammu and Kashmir should be a part of India to prove that a Muslim-majority region can thrive within its secular setup. But the king of Jammu and Kashmir had different plans. He wanted Jammu and Kashmir to remain an independent province, but if you see geographically, Jammu and Kashmir is located right in between India and Pakistan making it quite conflict prone from the very beginning. So soon after the partition, we see that the rebels from Pakistan infiltrated Kashmir in an attempt to take over and the king had no option but to turn to someone for help. In this situation, the king turned to India for help. India took this opportunity to protect the province of Jammu and Kashmir but on the condition that they join India. This you see, is not the greatest start to form a trustworthy relationship, but the king had no option, so he agreed. But the king, too, put out a condition that Kashmir should be granted its own autonomy over its political affairs, where it can manage its own constitution, it, it can have a separate flag, it can have a national anthem, and this was done to ensure the political identity of the Kashmiris was well protected. The Kashmiri question was to be settled by a referendum leader, that is as soon as the conditions in the region became better, the people of Kashmir would get to vote if they wanted to remain with India or be independent or join Pakistan. This was promised by India but this hasn't been conducted till date. And these are the very factors that made Jammu and Kashmir special um, than the other Indian states. So even though it was, a, it was a, an Indian state, it was special in this regard. So what we're looking at is one of the longest lasting conflicts within India with no resolution in sight. It's quite complex if you see because first you have to study two neighboring nations, India and Pakistan fighting over it and then you have Kashmir internally fighting the Indian rule, which both of which should be studied separately. So the case in point today is the Kashmiri conflict. More specifically, we're trying to understand why are the Kashmiri rebels fighting the Indian rule. Insurgency broke out in Kashmir in 1989, which was 42 years after German Kashmir had joined India. If you see, insurgency in Kashmir started out small, but the number of insurgent groups grew after that. If you take a step back and try and understand what insurgency means, it is an uprising where a group of people are expected to rebel against authority using arms. In our case, this would mean groups of Kashmiris fighting the Indian authority are the insurgent groups. So let's go back to our question, why are the Kashmiris fighting the Indian rule? Many claims have been made to explain the cause of insurgency in the academic world. Some said that an Islamic Kashmir is incompatible with the Hindu India and that's why Kashmiris are rebelling against the Indian authority. Some said that Pakistan is using its religious similarity in provoking Kashmiris to rebel or fight India, that it's simply Pakistan sponsored terrorism. But You see, such claims have a tendency of oversimplifying the issue at hand by using religion too much. They still fail to explain why the Kashmiris are fighting the Indian rule. Now, about the first claim, it was not religious incompatibility with the Hindu India that encouraged Kashmiris to pick up arms against the Indian state. Because you see, life in Kashmir was quite used to um, religious transitions. It had seen buddhism and then it transitioned to shivaism and then again to islam all these transitions were rather smooth now we have to understand that all muslims are not the same culturally being a muslim might be one of the factor that shapes someone's a community's ethnocultural identity but it is not the factor kashmir's ethnocultural identity born out of religious transitions and exposure was known as kashmiriyat which they were very protective of Um, for the people of kashmir be, Kashmiriyat comes first. That is to say that being a Kashmiri takes precedence over being a Muslim or a Kashmiri Muslim. Upon that, Kashmiriyat also found similarity with the nature of the Indian federal politics. They both were secular in character. So these sort of reasons prompted Kashmir to better identify with India and be comfortable in preferring to join India over Pakistan. They did not choose Pakistan because. A wider Muslim identity was threatening to them. It did not appeal to them. And that's why when you use religion to explain this conflict, it goes against Kashmir's logic for choosing to join India over Pakistan. It does not have any basis. Now about the other claim that Kashmiri insurgency is nothing but Pakistan sponsored terrorism. See the Kashmiri insurgency has always been seen as an act of terrorism. The logic is. The only route of arms and terrorists into Kashmir is to Pakistan and the only way terrorists can influence Kashmiris is again on the basis of religion. Now we cannot deny that this conflict is at a risk of being exploited by religious fundamentalists. After Islamic State stood this figure in Syria and Iraq, it possessed the threat of regrouping elsewhere. Global Threat Forecast 2019 sort of predicted that a possible location for ISIS to regroup was Kashmir. Yet. Two prominent terrorist groups that is the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda have sort of failed to exploit the conflict in Kashmir. So such failures show that neither religion nor Pakistan um, could have been the mobilizing factors for Kashmiri insurgency now we aren't refuting the likelihood of kashmiri militants joining jihadi outfits it could very well be that the kashmiri militants of today become the terrorists of tomorrow but that religion isn't the factor prompting them to do so it isn't the sole motivation and likewise religion isn't the reason that kashmiri rebels dislike india for instance in 2017 zakir musa a kashmiri militant formed a militant group, a Kashmiri militant group called Ansar Ghazwatul Hind and pledged allegiance to Al-Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent. This was perceived as a trend of radicalization in the valley. But if you think about it, is it enough to prove that Islamic fundamentalism is on the rise in the valley? What Zakir Musa did was simply leave one militant organization and join another. He left one group that was Hezbollah mujahideen to form another militant group that was Ansar Ghazwatul Hind. He was not a local Kashmiri who got radicalized overnight. He was used to the idea of militancy. Now this change of affiliation could be for various reasons. It could be for better resources, better arms, better rank, a global status that comes with having pledged allegiance to Al-Qaeda. And even if religion is what made him form Ansar Kaswatul Hind, it could not have been the sole motivation. Furthermore, you have to understand that Pakistan terrorist groups And these transnational terrorist groups, that is Al-Qaeda and Islamic State, they are not united. Kashmiri militants in fact have a better chance joining ISIS and Al-Qaeda for their global outrage and for their better resources than they do by by having joined Pakistani-backed militant factions because they lack all of these. And if anything, a possibility of ISIS clashing with Indian security forces on one hand and Pakistani terrorist organizations on the other sort of may discourage terrorist penetration in Kashmir. To further prove this trend of radicalization in the kashmir valley academics sort of um, made more observa- observations they said that the nature of the separatist struggle in kashmir is changing they said that before it used to be about an independent and secular kashmir but now this was being replaced and that islamism and jihad were becoming sort of the driving forces of the separatist movement one academic gives us some interesting findings he conducts interviews in 2020 in Kashmir um, to prove this trend of radicalization. He interviews 300 young boys and girls between the age of 15 to 30. And the findings are, the interviewees expressed hatred for the Indian security forces, and they greatly believed in the struggle of militants such as Zakir Musa and Burhan Vani, who vowed to establish an Islamic caliphate in Kashmir. And that 80% of these interviewees considered another suicide bomber in Kashmir, Adil Dar, a martyr. But most importantly, these interviews sort of sympathized with ISIS and Al-Qaeda and preferred Al-Qaeda's model of governance over ISIS for Kashmir. Now we have to take all this information with a pinch of salt. If we take a step back and inquire further, these spaces are the most likely to to, to get radicalized. 90% 90% of these, these students were enrolled in schools that were managed by al Hadith and Jamaat-e-Islami sects. Jamaat-e-Islami is a pro-Pakistani extremist organization that sort of believes in the primacy of Sharia, the Islamic law, and al Hadith is a religious movement, a sect that comprises of believers of a similar nature. Now if you're going to go into spaces as such that are at the m- most risk of being radicalized, the findings are going to be alarming. and the biggest reason to refute that Pakistan did not cause the Kashmiri insurgency comes with the timing of the insurgency. If you remember, Kashmir joined India in 1947, whereas Kashmiri insurgency began in 1989. That was 42 years after they had joined India. Now for argument's sake, let's say that Kashmiri insurgency is because of Pakistan-sponsored terrorism or it is because of religious incompatibility with India. Then Why did it occur only in 1989 and not any time after the partition? For instance, the political environment in India in 1965 was quite conducive for insurgency to take roots in Kashmir. It would have been a good opportunity for Pakistani-backed militant factions to sort of stir the insurgency in Kashmir. The Pakistani infiltrators would have served as ready allies if the Kashmiris wanted to fight the Indian rule. But the Kashmiris did not rebel at the time. Perhaps Pakistan is being credited more than it is capable of doing in this situation. Now if it wasn't religious incompatibility or Pakistan sponsored terrorism that made Kashmiris to rebel against the Indian state, then what is? One explanation checks most boxes. You see, on one hand the Kashmiris were becoming politically aware and increasingly participating in the politics of state. But at the same time, the political institutions of Kashmir were failing to meet people's expectations. That is to say that the political institutions in Jammu and Kashmir were sort of decaying. You could say elections were corrupt. There was no political opposition. No one tried to rectify the corrupt political practices. And there was no freedom of expression or press. So if we dig deeper, we'll see how these political institutions were sort of crumbling down on five fronts. On the constitutional front, Kashmir's relationship with India has been questioned time and again. Uh, Like I mentioned before, Kashmiris were very protective of their cultural identity. So in this regard, Kashmir identified with India better than Pakistan for its federal nature of politics. So when Jammu and Kashmir joined India, India went ahead and reassured Kashmir with the provision of Article 370. This meant that Kashmir can have political autonomy over its internal political matters. This was in fact very reassuring for Kashmir because whoever they joined, they wanted to be treated as equal partners. So what Article 370 sort of does is it guarantees Kashmir to have its own constitution, its own flag, political designations that is unlike any other Indian states. But the far-right groups within India were not welcoming of this. They saw this as an incomplete integration. And how much of this article was actually benefiting for, for the people of Kashmir? The very article that was put in place to protect Kashmir's autonomy, the central government did not respect it. They used it to sort of interfere with the politics of Kashmir. They dismissed political leaders in Kashmir and put favourable ones in power to sort of extend more constitutional provisions to Kashmir, treating it just like any other Indian state. So the provisions that that were extended by the Indian government to Kashmir, they do not hold any value in the eyes of Kashmiris. What the Kashmiris were promised and what they were given are different. this was sort of the beginning of how the Kashmiris started to lose trust in India. Let's move to the electoral practices in Jammu and Kashmir. It's very crucial to have free and fair elections in a democratic setup. But elections in Jammu and Kashmir were mostly corrupt and when this happens, it's the responsibility of the central institutions to sort of rectify the dishonest practices. But the Indian Election Commission ignored it. It's because Jammu and Kashmir was clearly very important for India to prove that it is a secular country, and so India did not care about who's in power or how they got to power in Kashmir as long as they did not, the leaders did not demand for uh, an independent Kashmir. Even the most popular political party in Jammu and Kashmir, the National Conference, had to ally with the Indian central government to remain in power. The national conference was popular because their leaders, Sheikh Abdullah and Farooq Abdullah were popular. The Kashmiris considered them highly. The Indian central government detained them twice after they won elections in the name of national interest without any trial. The same goes for other Kashmiri leaders who had no choice but to ally with the central government if they wish to remain in power. This sort of gave the Indian um, political leaders to, uh, to interfere with the politics of Kashmir. They did not contest elections, but at the same time they got to run Jammu and Kashmir. Kashmir had set out wanting to have control over its political matters, and Kashmir was promised that. But the political leadership in Kashmir was being weakened so, so that they could not execute it. Generally, when those in power seem incompetent, it's the political opposition that is expected to sort of point fingers at the corruption. But there was no political opposition in Kashmir. From the very beginning, you see, the national and local Kashmiri leaders never allowed for an honest political opposition to emerge. It's it's a tragedy that there was no space for uh, discussion and interaction in, in politics. On the contrary, one party kept winning, or was rather made to win elections, and obviously this sort of led to decision making that was centralised, which did not allow for any anyone opposing them internally. These are um, authoritarian tendencies that is harmful for democracy. Let's see how the politics of the state was affecting the economic affairs of Jammu and Kashmir. The political leaders began exploiting the economy of uh, the state by using it to secure votes. Kashmir had a very oppressive structure of economy, and this was highly improved in the 1950s. So naturally, uh, Kashmiris expected more of the politics that would bring about social change in the future. But after 1950s, the politics of Kashmir had lost its social purpose and changed uh, to become one that is extremely power hungry. So all that that is aimed to make a better society, be it uh, free education, loans, scholarships um, or low tax rates became means for political parties to secure votes. So if you could get a better grant from the center, you'd be voted for. Political leaders were being elected like that. This created a false sense of economic well-being in Kashmir. The The central government of India kept pumping money into Kashmir, but it was not used to repair the economic infrastructure of Kashmir. Only a class of elite enjoyed this, but this did not improve the socio-economic conditions of the mass Kashmiris. One good thing about uh, the initiatives of of free education and land reforms was that it created a class of Kashmiris with better awareness, with with better political participation, and They had greater expectations from the system but at the same time a weak economic infrastructure that was primarily dependent on center approved grants was unable to sort of accommodate these expectations of the new emerging class of Kashmiris. We only had to wait, sit back and wait to see what this new class of Kashmiris were willing to do about it. Clearly the Kashmiris were unhappy but they couldn't find any uh, platform to express their discontent. And so the discontent got pushed to a space that uh, runs on anti-India logic. Now, we have to remember that the mainstream Kashmiri politicians too used the same anti-India logic to remain in power. This left no difference between those who were actually anti-India because they were fighting for an independent Kashmir and those who portrayed that they were anti-India only to come to power. The rebels picked up arms against the Indian state as a result of this, and the political order in Jammu and Kashmir crumbled. With this, we come to the last bit of our explanation. That is, uh, we try and understand the timing of the Kashmir insurgency. Um, If we look at the timeline, the political institutions of Kashmir had begun to deteriorate from the 1950s. So what made the Kashmiris to rebel only in 1989 and not any time before? It's because the generation of Kashmiris at the time were politically passive. Kashmiris tolerated corrupt state politics, firstly because they were very loyal to their leader, Sheikh Abdullah, and secondly because they lacked political sophistication. Kashmir had a very poor literacy rate and they lacked any media exposure. They were not conscious of their political rights. But this changed. As much as we can be critical of the ways that the national conference came to power and how it managed Kashmir, it did a few good things. Improving access to free education was one of them, thereby increasing their literacy rates and media exposure. This led to the emergence of a new generation of Kashmiris who were better educated and politically conscious. Now, a society that is politically conscious participates in politics more and it demands government accountability. And when a society is sort of transitioning like that, you need strong political institutions to accommodate these uh, growing expectations of the population, the absence of which may bring about political instability. And Kashmir is an example of that. Their institutions were weakening right when their society was becoming politically aware. The Kashmiris were unwilling to tolerate any more corrupt political practices that long characterized the politics of Kashmir. They realized that elections were only compromised in Kashmir and this drove their discontent. In conclusion, the Kashmiri conflict has been active for three decades now. Jammu and Kashmir was ranked partly free and then not free consistently over these years by the Freedom House Index, meaning people are refraining to participate in politics, the elections are not free and fair, there is no freedom of expression or freedom of press there. This goes on to show that the problem that made Kashmiris to rebel in the first place are still alive. When the political institutions got worse and Kashmiris rebelled, the government of India responded with harsh strategies more paramilitary troops were deployed in the region, curfews were put in place, with limited access or no access to internet. So, from the surface, it might seem that Kashmiris hate India. But Kashmiris don't hate India. They hate that they were promised things that were never delivered. Kashmiris view India as wrongfully occupying Jammu and Kashmir. Now, these are complex political processes that can be overwhelming to understand all at once. But if you do put in the time to understand it, it's everything. I don't need to tell you how, but it is everything.